0: You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode 151. Hey there, impact driver. Welcome to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard, and this week we are doing part two of the PMO Impact Summit live stream Q&A session that was held during our most recent PMO Impact Summit in May. So if you did not listen to episode 150, go back and listen to episode 150 first because I give a little background at the beginning that tells you about the speakers' topics that they covered during the PMO Impact Summit. And it's the first half of this live stream Q&A conversation that we had. Now, this week, we're going to keep going into additional topics, additional questions that came up from the audience at our most recent PMO Impact Summit. So check that out now. And then next week, we are going to cover a different live stream Q&A that we call Impact After Hours, where we get a little bit silly, but we also cover some really important thought provoking ideas and insights that. The top PMO leaders and the top thought leaders in this space are all understanding, knowing, and applying. So you definitely want to listen to those upcoming episodes as well. So I'll let you dive into the second half of our live stream Q&A from some of the speakers at this most recent May PMO Impact Summit. Enjoy. Curtis, you put in the chat that um, one of our students, Willetta Love, who I absolutely adore, one of our Impact Engine PMO students, we have several of them here. Shout out to all of you. I see you, Andrea, Carol, Corey, Gregor, uh, Janik, Joan, Willetta. I see you all here. Um, shout out to my Impact Engine PMO students. You rock. Uh, Willetta said she would love for Curtis to expand on his comment regarding different cultures drive different approaches. You put that in the chat in response to some of the discussion we have had here. Can we talk a little bit about all that?
1: Absolutely. And this was when uh, we were talking about owning the business case and John mentioned sort of a alternative uh, thought process to Mm -hmm. us when we were talking about it. And what I meant by different cultures uh, drive different outcomes. I mean, I am in an entrepreneurial uh, culture versus a government culture. And so uh, I have a couple of mantras that I use. One is I don't manage projects, I manage stakeholders. And two, speed over methodology. With that being said, this type of culture, I really have to deliver fast, and I have to find ways to communicate so that the leadership understands me, trusts me, allows me to do that. And so when we talked about my approach around the business case and the ownership, I was giving... It based on my culture. And I believe John was talking about from a military perspective and government perspective, giving from his perspective. So you have to understand where you are, the environment that you're working in, and how you're going to manage through it. And I'll give one more example. Uh, resource management. I don't do that well, because I was asked by my culture not to capture time. So I have to do that in a way that's less scientific and more from an art perspective because uh, I don't capture all the business's time because I've worked in organizations that do that and I can look at a tool and understand where I'm having capacity issues, but now I have to do it where I don't have that data that tells me. And so I have to go by gut, by what I hear from people. So I have to manage through the culture. And it, I've been successful in doing it. So that's, that's what I meant. And I hope I, I answered your question.
0: Any other thoughts on that?
2: I, I would definitely agree with Curtis that it's a, it's a cultural thing. You know, what kind of company are you in? You know, in the government, you're in the public sector. There, there is no CEO or boss really to a certain extent. There's always someone above you that can overrule something. And ultimately those people above you can get outvoted at least in the United States, can get outvoted you know, by, by the public. So, so it's an ever dynamic changing thing. So what is that culture within a company or in a business union, or whether your customer is actually in a different business, you're a consulting firm going into a customer and how, you, how you're advising them and doing things and where is that business case in that. So it very much needs to be thought through with the strategy. What is the strategic path that roadmap you're going to be successful to walk down? Sometimes that takes. I mean, I'm in doing a consulting job now with a very large health organization. You know, we've sat back and said they've got to make some or that structural thing. They've got to make some organizational changes first. We're doing some fine-tuning changes that are that are kind of critical, but the big change to go to portfolios and those kind of things, it's literally going to take years because you are moving. You're moving, as, a, as the book said, you're moving everybody's cheese around. Right. You know? And you move it too fast and, and, and the culture war is going to come out, right? You know, so you gotta, you got to plan it out. you got to build that roadmap and how you're going to do things. And so it's very much a part of the game. Absolutely.
3: The flip side of that has to be, though, that culture can't be untouchable. And the military, government, you know, things are going to move slowly. And culture is a trailing indicator. You change your processes, you change your people, you change your operations, culture will follow. But you can't survive in organizations today simply by going, that's the way we do things here. That's how things are. We just have to adapt and work around it. There can't be any 500-pound gorillas that you're afraid to tackle.
4: I disagree on the sequence of the culture stuff. And one of the things that I say to people is that hands down, the fastest way of changing culture is to change what you reward and recognise. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. It's still changing behaviour though, right, to drive that.
1: You're changing the the, the yeah. way you work and the yeah. way people yeah, behave. Yeah. You have to speak the language too, right? So where I felt like I was failing in the beginning I wasn't speaking to the CFO and the, and the COO and the CEO because I was speaking in project management ease. I wasn't right. speaking in business ease. Right. And so when you talk about a culture and adapting, it is understanding the lay of the land to get people to actually see you as a leader and will follow you. And so, uh, you know, when I, that's another area of culture is understanding who you're dealing with mm-hmm. so that you can lead them.
0: Well, right. mm-hmm. Curtis, that's one of the biggest problems we have is that a lot of project managers that then become PMO leaders and have tied their value to how project managey they can be, right? Yeah, how good yeah. they can perfect their outputs, right? They're right. measured. Well, you know, we're only hiring PMPs. We're just reinforcing it, right? We're only hiring right. PMPs. So, you know, the better, the more PMP you are, the better you are, right? So we yeah. reinforce, and then they grow up to be PMO leaders sometimes. And then right. they say they bring that culture with them of my value is defined by how project managey I can be, as opposed right. to how much I can be a business leader and bring people with me through the change process process. I, every CEO I've ever met has been grateful that I'm a get shit done kind of girl. Right. And the minute I stop talking project management to them and start talking business speak and all of you that are listening today, if you that's find right. yourself saying they don't get me, they don't get project management. Good. They don't need to, that's your job. That's your right. job right. is to get them so that you can understand the business problems that they need solved and yeah. solve those problems. Right. You got to bring them with you through the change process, and stop trying to do change to people and do it with them. You don't hit change resistance if you do it right. You really don't, oh. because when you are telling people, when you when you go to them and you say, "I've got all the stuff you need, all the solutions you need, all the templates and tools and process," they're like, ah, I don't want any of that." But when you say, "Hey, you know how it's driving you crazy? The projects are taking so long and costing so much." Well, we figured out what the problem is, and we're going to help you solve that. Would you like some help with that? They're like, "Heck yeah!" right? You've got to speak their language, mm-hmm.
4: right? People and- don't object to change. They object to being changed. Exactly. One of the problems I've always had with change management as it now is, is that it's a bolt on that the business has created. Yes. to We take the output and turn it into something that's working. And you yeah. get all these, sorry, I'm going to swear, bloody consultants who come in and they do these these um surveys of change readiness and i'm going you know do you know what's happening are you happy with what's happening and you go why the heck didn't you actually get people involved in the whole process of crafting outcomes for this project which you wouldn't have taken very long and you could have done it in a couple of weeks and they would have actually felt like they owned it
0: exactly amen sorry
2: well i I, I don't know why I mean, it drives me crazy sometimes. Says, "Well, you know, we're going to run these projects, but we need a change person to come in." And I'm like,
0: "Oh
4: yeah, oh, they outsource it, change. They outsource change to some guy over there. Yeah, all right, projects right. are those. change projects.
2: Project <laughs> management is change. I mean, Project,
4: all projects are change
2: projects. Are, are, are change projects, right? You know, so um, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Building your portfolio around that strategy or where you want to go is all about change. You're going from point A to point B to point C to point D, you know, where you want to go, where, and if you don't have that plan out into the future, you know, uh, and lay that out, you're never going to get there. You know, you may not follow the plan exactly, but you got to have a plan laid out as to where you're going to go, you know?
1: Yeah. But I, so I've seen so many projects uh, that were technically successful, but, they failed because people. I mean, just like you design something, that doesn't mean people are going to use it. Right. So you can bring a solution to the people, but you got to bring people to the solution. And like you guys are, I think, are alluding to that it should be normal part of a project management practice. But what I find, especially with technical projects, right, is that um, we take this uh, we take this technology, we we bolt it in, but we fail to you know inform the people about what the benefits are for them and then give them a process of coming to the new solution because people don't like change. So I, no, I think it's no, no,
4: no, no I think
1: I think people don't like change and well, it's difficult to. Granny's make them see
4: using that. iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Granny's, Granny's using, using iPhones. iPhones. Yeah. So here's
0: the thing. People don't like so people do like change. They just don't like change being done to them. And if yes. you don't agree, do you know anybody that's gotten married on purpose or had children on purpose? or changed jobs or had a, built a new hat, like a new, you know, a, a new um, hobby or, you know, did it, people are participating in this. People love change when they are in control of it and it's not being done to them. And so, they have a
4: chance to contribute, which is the exactly. whole thing I say about without outcomes thinking, you know, this isn't something that you kind of just do. You float into the senior executive's office and say, let's, do some work on drafting your outcomes what you do is you you hit people you put the stuff up in the tea room and they they start rewording the wording and say no it's not about enjoying it's about it's feeling joy you know and they change the wording because they and they own it yeah Mm -hmm. that's right yeah so so i think so curtis the thing is, is that depending
0: on the perspective you're coming from, it does feel very much like people don't like change. They just don't like being changed. And so uh, you're representing a lot of what people are experiencing in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. But if they own it and it's something they desire, something they want, sometimes they still can't work their way through it. Anyone join a gym and then not go, right? Like, so still, even if they want it, it's hard. And that's why why I believe it's so important for PMO leaders and project managers to be be the facilitators of the change process and stop outsourcing it to another group, right? They need to be the ones that are helping to stand beside these people, meeting them where they are and bringing them on that journey instead. And, and I agree with you
1: 100%, 100% on that. In fact, when we went to do a big workday implementation and the organization wanted to get an outside organization, I walked into the corner office and said, somewhere I must've failed. To show you that we already implement uh, with a high degree of change management. Uh, so, uh, you know, but they, we 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 leveraged the outside organization for a short period and saw that they weren't bringing the value that my team was bringing. So, I, I get I get what you're saying, and I think you're using better words that people don't like being changed. But yeah. I, you know, I I I think about a lot of times change comes from the top, right? So. We're, go- we're all going to use Salesforce.com now. I want to drive everybody to Salesforce.com. And the sales team was like, wow, I mean, we just had three other mantras last right. week, and now you're putting this on us. And so I've seen the resistance to change unless you have a process in which you bring these people to the solution and the why and why it's going to make their lives better versus right. an edict from the top.
0: Uh, I just want to share this comment. Steve Steve Fulmer, who's been a regular contributor to the PMO Impact Summit, um, is one of my favorite change management experts. He says that change management has a place uh, in businesses who repeatedly try to change and fail. The role of change management practitioners is uh, to help businesses understand how change can work for their people and culture. It is often necessary to get an external voice to create open minds, then the PMO has a better chance of working internally. And I think that's really on point, very yeah. on point. And I think it very valid. Um, my, and, and, and I do believe we need experts in helping to, helping to teach all of us how to do change better. And there's great certifications out there um, about that. And um, as, as Steve Shirley knows, um, but I think his point is well taken. Sometimes you need to bring in the experts to help you, but you don't neglect your responsibility by having a change department or bringing in a change consultant the business the PMO all still needs to own it right but they can pull on these the expertise of folks like Steve in particular and folks like that that can bring that expertise to the table to help teach them how to bring people through change I think that's
4: really that's a really important word it's that thing about teaching because one of the things that I say about the the outcomes thinking stuff that I do is that you could wheel me into a, you know, an organization, I could basically go work with everybody and they'd all end up with all these business cases full of lovely outcome statements and that would just be awesome. But that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to teach people so that what they come up with is their work. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a change practitioner who's very much of the the, the view that their role is to teach people the things that they may not think about, then actually I think that's awesome.
0: I'm going to switch gears a little bit, Ned. I wanted to start with you. This is one of the questions that came in. I When I when we started all this talking about how um, – uh, the the in the PMO health assessment workshop, I was talking about the strategy life cycle and where um, where PMOs tend to focus is in that strategy delivery stage, and where and I I personally don't believe that's where you get a lot of your value right. Of course, you do need to deliver on projects, right? But when it comes to the improvements and the places where the pain is actually coming from, a lot of it is upfront before the projects even start and, and things you need to fix there. And then also, we, we're kind of alluding to some of this with the outcomes thinking and business cases, you've got to define all that up front, but then you have to actually measure the results, measure the outcomes, measure the impact, the ROI at the end. So the question that um, John pandico asked was, how much time should you spend in each of these areas? And I'm sure the answer is somewhere in the, it depends, but can you maybe talk about some examples, Ed, of, of you know, maybe more specifically on things you can do in each stage of like the strategy life cycle to, to provide real tangible business value.
5: Yeah, I think, um, Part of the value that we can bring in as people that have experience in PMO and doing more of the execution of the projects is have a lot more depth of knowledge about all of the complexities and the details that will go into the execution of the project. And sometimes in the early stages of these strategic discussions, it's very lofty goals. it's the you know vision statements and and this is what we want to do over the next five years. and not really thinking, Do we have the resources? Are we set up for success to, you know, execute on those projects? You know, but initially, um, there's not a a lot of time that you get with the leaders to get into the details. So I think going back to the previous discussion is really understanding how to talk to CEOs, how to have very productive meetings when you only get a short amount of time to work with them. Um, You can't come in there with like I've got all these whiteboards and all these processes and forms that we're going to fill out and try to explain something like that. You've got to be able to get into, and, and, and as you kind of go through those phases, your audience and your approach may change a little bit. But when you first start those very high level discussions, you've got to speak to high level leaders and you've got to understand how to think about all those more tactical things that are in your mind as a good project manager or program manager would already be thinking about but you know, be very concise and to the point and 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 really have productive meetings with those leaders and get what you need from them, which is really, you know, where do they want to go from a strategic direction at that higher level? And then when you move to the, the next level, you probably are spending a little bit more time because you're decomposing some of those high-level strategic statements or 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 direction and vision that you got for the higher level leaders. And so I think they're starting to break things down a little bit more. And in some cases, You know, there could be some fallout, right? When we talk about putting together the strategy, putting together the business cases, if you're doing that the right way, not every one of those business cases is going to turn into an executable project. You're going to put together a business case, and then your leadership team is going to evaluate that business case against the strategy of the organization, and some things are going to fall out especially when we get into like what we've been talking about, um, you know, where we have constraints around priorities, we can't do everything, right? And so there's going to be business cases that once they go through some type of evaluation, they either say, okay, um, you know, in some cases we say we have limited funding, that's something that we want to go do, but let's put it on the back burner and if funding becomes available, we'll pull it in, but we're not going to put it on our priority list to go execute today. So, you know, in, in my view, those, those higher level decisions discussions there's a lot less time in and in, in really just trying to understand kind of the thought process and understand where the leaders want to go and keep that at a fairly high level and as you get a little bit more in the later phases that's where more details come in and so and then also because you follow kind of that that sequence and that level of effort um, the initial discussions you're not putting a lot of time into things that, that may fall out and so, you know, you don't want to go going to fly once you get into the business case analysis. So you want to sort of keep things at a high level until you're, you know, kind of quite sure that, yes, that's the direction we want to go. And you're, you know, spending time working out the details and developing more of the business case and the actual roadmap and the plan as you're sort of going through some of those strategic discussions. Excellent. Thank
0: you. Anyone else want to jump in on
5: that one? Yeah, I...
2: I I agree with what you're saying, Ed, absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things is going back to whether we're measuring and are these projects going along the way, is our willingness to kill the project that isn't going right, right. We want it to go. It's all part of the process. No, no. Once you got the budget, you got to spend it. Yeah, right. (laughs) And that's the benefit of are you running a bunch of projects all by themselves? Are they packaged inside of programs? And being watched, are they packaged inside a portfolio or sets of portfolios? How are they being watched? And the portfolio manager is really looking at that overall value. But you get project managers that are like, you know, my life is defined by this project. i got to make this project successful. And this comes back to what Curtis was talking about. Culture is very Mm -hmm. helpful. You got to not define good project managers to be like, well, your project's always successful. Because... You want your project managers to come back and go, this isn't going to work. We need to kill, right. you know, um, that, and this is where the Department of Defense runs programs, you know, spends billions of dollars and then decides to kill the project or Congress kills the form. And really, they could have made that decision two or three years earlier yeah. and repurposed the money someplace else. And, and that's an important part of think, look at all the value lost. Look at all the benefits lost with that, right? Yeah. So that's a that's an important part of the culture, and which is tough. It's very tough on our community, the project program, the portfolio managers, because they don't want to fail. Mm-hmm. It's not you, it's the project. Right.
1: So Laura, to answer your question the way I thought you asked it, I'm gonna say 30, maybe 25 to 30 percent, and then Around 50 to 60 percent and then another 20 percent. And forgive me if I didn't get 100. Uh, <laughs> that. But but what I'm saying here is the, the first 25 to 30 percent, especially uh, as we're coming to the summer. So our fiscal year ends uh, at the end of September. Our new year starts in October. So we're starting to look at the next year. And what our capital spend is going to look like. We're a very acquisitive company. You know, where are we looking at to to go in what specific regions and why and what types of companies? And also, what are some of our big problems, right? I think everybody's facing inflation, raw material inflation and and things like that. So so it's these discussions that we're having uh, at the leadership level and at the board level around what are the projects and how we're going to get our money, how we're going to spend our money. So the first mm-hmm. part is just listening, participate mm-hmm. and listen and start thinking about, you know, how you can add value when somebody's not coming to you directly, but also then start to talk about, well what is it is what what are our priorities? What do we want to attack first, second, third? And you know, we we got this major inventory problem and we need a system that's going to help us monitor that. So it's that part up front, right? Stop being order takers and being more big game hunters. And Mm -hmm. then you go into the the new year, right? You understand what your OPEX budgets are going to be. You understand what your CAPEX budgets are going to be. And you understand everybody's accountability associated with that. And that's what I build governance and projects around, right? And it's not that we don't do other projects, but this is part of where the Uh, defining the business cases, getting them through, prioritizing, and then executing. And so most of the year is then in execution. But then I like to reserve a small part of, uh, of a project audit. And I take a sampling of projects and I work with the audit team and my team to say, why don't you go back and look at some of these projects? Did they make the business case to give me more ammunition on making sure that the loudest voices aren't getting their projects in and showing them real data around mm. the fact that they mm. are putting these numbers in business cases, but they're not making them. And it's easier to do with m because you got a lot of people focused on what the synergies are, right? That, that is a financial deal. So it's much easier with those. It's much harder with the other systems that claim because the numbers kind of mix in with the other financials. So it, it's not a perfect science. But to me, that's how I would break up You know, how much time to spend up front, how much time executing, and then how much time measuring. And when mm-hmm. we talk about vision to reality, uh, in the reality space is two parts to it. It is the uh, accountability, and the second one is making sure that you're measuring the right things so that, that those numbers tell you a story that you can right. behave off of. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, So one of the things that, so what I was teaching them is, um, it's kind of an order of things, right? Um, so the original question about specifically how that someone asked about specifically how much time and strategy definition versus strategy delivery versus measuring the impact of that strategy, you know, valid strategy realization, um, I think it's an order thing versus a percentage of time thing, right? Like I teach our students in the Impact Engine PMO program to It's an, it, it's continual value delivery, an iterative approach to building yes. a PMO, right? right? Yeah. So instead yeah. of trying to do the big bang of take a year, they gave you some budget and go hire some people and do build a bunch of stuff, a bunch of outputs, right. right? Instead, yeah. focus on um, finding, you know, the most important pain point that they need addressed first. The reason they hired you. Right. Yep. And then get to the root cause because they're going to say, well, project Management's broken and you're going to have to figure out, well, it's not actually that it's actually you guys not, you know, saying that every project is number one priority and then trying to shove 10 pounds of projects into a five pound bag. That's your problem. Right. So figure yeah. out what that is. Go Mm. fix that first and then keep iterating, right? And it might mean the next time the problem actually is a fact that maybe you don't have any project managers. (laughs) Maybe that's a thing you should fix, right? You Um, are absolutely
4: talking outcomes path dependency, Laura.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I'm actually going to. ask You never knew you to that, talk but that's about that. what you're
4: talking. Right, right.
0: and so I'm going to right, and this is, and that's the thing is a lot of the stuff that we, that all of us and our expertise teach, is based on like what really works in the real world, mm-hmm. right? So, Alex, I'm going to actually ask you to dive a little deeper into that in just a minute. So I'm going to ask each of you to kind of talk about the the theme of your presentation and kind of a big takeaway from your from each of your presentations. So, um, but but I think it's not as simple as like, well, you should always spend. 30% here 50% here whatever i mean i think it really depends on figure out what pain point you must address first figure out you know where the root cause of that is go there solve that In many cases, with almost all of our students, it's front-end problems that are happening with the business leaders, and they don't even know that they're the ones causing all of the problems that they're experiencing with project, you know, delivery. It's because they're screwing things up before you ever start, right? Um, So oftentimes, they have to start up there, but then at some point, you know, and that doesn't mean you don't deliver on projects, But many of our PMO leaders are in a place where they have to build the plane while they're flying it, right? So, okay, you've Mm -hmm. got a portfolio of projects that need to be managed now. Do what you can with what you've got to deliver on those projects. But in the meantime, let's make it so all of the new projects that come in actually are properly resourced, are prioritized effectively. We're not putting, you know, spreading our subject matter experts across 65 projects, right? Like all of those front end things that will enable your existing smart people certified or not to do good work right because most people you know you before we had an official you know, before the pmp people still managed projects and did a pretty darn good job right and before we called it project management it was just called good people doing work and getting things done right so i think that there's a lot to be said for good enough when it comes to your project delivery process until you can fix all of the front end things that are causing problems and make sure that you're measuring the success of the back end thing, right? Like when it's done, did we do what we said we were going to do? You know, did we achieve success and was it worth it? ROI, right? Like those are some basic things that I think that we need to do. So I think it's kind of a, you know, it's an, it's depends, but that's why every PMO is unique and the services that, that it delivers are fairly unique based on whatever the business problem is they're trying to solve. Um, So I want to switch gears and just let all of you take a couple of minutes to just talk about uh, some of the main themes or points from your presentation. Some folks have seen them already. Some folks have not yet. So if you've not seen the um, presentations from all these brilliant thought leaders and the ones that were not able to join us today, please make sure you do. You have until Friday at 1159 Greenwich Mean Time to watch those presentations. So uh, 7.59, my time and Eastern time, we're shutting everything off. So make sure you do watch those on-demand recordings in whatever time zone you're in over the next couple of days. But I'd love if all of you could just share a little bit of your thoughts from your presentation. Andy, you're at the top, so I'm going to start with
3: you. All right. Thank you. Um, So I'm really talking about the fact that the P in project management office isn't going to be a P much longer because there's a lot of there's a lot going on that's got a lot to do with delivering value. And we spent a lot of time talking about it today. You've heard about projects to products, I'm sure. And yes, I know products begins with P as well. But there's now thinking of how do we deliver value streams? Yeah. How do we deliver business capabilities? And it's all about optimizing value. It's a reflection of the fact that The world is accelerating, and it's not 90% operations, 10% discretionary project funding. It's now, in some organizations, more discretionary funding than it is operational funding. And the PMO has to deliver that. The PMO has to enable that success. It means working in traditional waterfall environments where PMOs are most comfortable. It also means uh, adapting to agile environments where they talk about release trains and epics and all that other kind of weird stuff that we think is IT specific, but really isn't. It means working in hybrid because methodologies are becoming irrelevant because every project's different. You might've learned that way back when. So why don't we try and use the same approach for everything being different? Because that's not how things go. We have to evolve as a PMO and bluntly, if you've spent 20 years managing projects to try and become a PMO leader, that's like spending 20 years running a sales team in order to become the CFO. It's a totally different discipline. Mm -hmm. PMOs are business leadership functions. They're about enabling business success. Strategic portfolio management is a top-down discipline that is embracing the idea of of planning and execution and value optimization with the PMO being the enabler of that, the catalyst of success, but not if we keep thinking about on time, on scope, and on budget, and we think just about resource management and whether or not we can get 350 projects into one letter-sized summary for the executive's that's not delivering value to anybody and that's what I'm trying to explore in in my sort of session because Mm. the world of tomorrow is a lot different than the world of today and the world of today is already a lot different than the world of yesterday and many PMOs are managing as if it's 1972.
0: (laughs) Yes exactly so you heard it there if you haven't seen Andy's session um, the bottom line is PMOs are a business function, not a project function. And so you, you almost need to maybe unlearn some of the things that you learned to that got you, um, got you, you know, to where you are, but then where you want to go. If you want to be a PMO leader, you're going to have to embrace a whole new skill set, which means letting go of some of the, um, some of the things that got you there. Um, uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, Curtis, tell us a little bit more about your session.
1: Sure. So when you talk about business being, I'm sorry, a PMO being a business function, I mean, my book and my realization framework experience is talking about how project managers can help you run your companies, Mm. whether it's a big company or a small company. So I came up with this visual uh, realization framework experience to help simplify it. And, And so it's five steps. First is about visualize, right? Visualize where you're trying to go, what your pain points are. Visualize What does the outcomes look like at the end? Then start evaluate. Number two is evaluate. Evaluate the people. Do you have the right people? Because, you know, one of the things I like to say, you know, you are who you spend time with, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But do you have the right people in place that's going to help you achieve that vision? The third is calculate. And this is more about cash flow. Uh, And this is geared towards small businesses. 82% of small businesses fail because they fail to understand how to manage their cash. And so do you have the budget and also understanding of your financial metrics that also align to your vision? And if you have those those two things in place, then the fourth thing is clarify, clearing the fog. And that is putting together a good plan that now takes your vision and shows you the steps that you need to take to become real And then five is realize. And this is the key from backsliding, but to to make sure that you stay onto your vision and maybe even cycle onto a new one. And that is the measures you need to put in place to make sure that your plan is doing what you expect it to do. And then the fifth, and then the last part about that is accountability. I encourage many small business owners to have board of advisors, just like large businesses have. Board of directors. And so you have to have accountability so that you don't backslide so that you stay true to what you're trying to do. And that's what my realization framework experience is all about.
0: That's awesome. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you. Uh, So project managers, I love that project managers can help you run your business. And so I think it'd be really great for all of the PMO leaders and project managers participating to understand your realization framework so that they can think about how to bring those concepts to their business leaders and say, I am here to help, (laughs) not with a bunch of templates, tools and process, but helping you realize your business strategy. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you. Um,
2: John. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we've talked a lot about it. Yeah. It's, you know, we're talking about portfolios, not just prioritizing and those kind of things, looking at the strategy. Let your portfolio structure be driven by that strategy. And then that concept I put out there about structure, conduct, performance. That, oh, by the way, most likely you weren't taught that in economics at, at, at college. That's, that comes out of a vein of economics called new institutional economics. And what's that really about? Is is how institutions are structured. So if you're interested in more on that, you can kind of Google that stuff and go down that line. Um, but it, it, I'll, I'll go back to something that a, a variety of the folks on the on the uh, table have been talking about, and that is, um, we do need to have flexibility in the way we do these things. So, but I but I would warn people um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know. We, there are some really good fundamental structures and I think you need to fundamentally know, you know, the ANSI standards, you know, the PMI standards, what those structures are and make conscious decisions about how you're then going to change those. You have to tailor them fundamentally. Mm -hmm. If you're using them right off the box, if you're pulling down stuff and using it right out of the box, you you have to think about it more. It's a strategy thing. And I'll leave you with a with uh, a term I, or a saying that my father used to say, who was involved with writing the original earned value criteria and those kind of things, is uh, don't let the tool control the hand that uses it.
0: Oh, uh, I love so that. Right.
2: Huh. Uh, it's that in a down. quote in Eric Kirzner's books uh, down that line. And then the one that I use all the time is I have strong beliefs, but they're lightly held. So I have strong beliefs about what structures I should be using and those kind of things, as long as they are working for me. Right. So when you get data in that says, this is not working, whether it's the new agile thing, that's really great, but it's not working for your group because you don't have the right culture. You haven't made the right changes yet. Have those strong beliefs about what you're doing, but hold them lightly when you get new data and make those changes. I'll leave you with that. It's been a Thank fun. you. We have two
0: more, two more left. Alex, you're next. Then Ed.
4: Okay, so um, in the session that I did, basically what I I I talked about was um, first an introduction. I get gave some examples of uh, outcome statements, but one of the things that I talk a lot about is the thing that I say this is not something that you as the guru or hero consultant goes in and does with the senior executive and then you kind of end up with this awesome document that lands on people's desks as a communique right mm-hmm. this is a process which is wonderfully amiable to you having well I've done it with 80 people in the room and it was bedlam or you can do it with but. 10 or 15 people and then that work then gets shared amongst a whole pile of other people and then that work gets stuck up on tea rooms and have people annotate and send you emails and so forth so one of the things that I say is that this is a this is a thinking process and it is based on accelerated learning techniques and the way the brain works. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is um, someone asked a question about uh, the outcomes path dependency. One of the things that I say to people about outcomes path dependency is that good project managers just know that there is an order to do things in that if you do this first, then that thing will work better and that problem noise will go away and then it'll be really easy to get to the next point and then we do this and then it'll be really easy to get to the next point. And a good project people just know this, but the trouble is there's never been... A term to describe that because it gets all muddled up with critical path which is something completely different which is basically uh-huh. how long the project's going to take based on how long the tasks are going to take and <clears throat> so an outcomes path dependency is the sort of the evolution of that because um, what we basically say is that if you've crafted a, a you know a reasonable go of your outcome statements and you and then work out the well, what order should I do them in? One of the things that happens is that you magically start to get that momentum and sense of progress. Now, the question was asked is that, is the the value that's being continuously delivered related to outcomes path dependency? One of the things that I say is, is that with outcomes, you can actually work on multiple ones at the same time. You know, often I show people that if you get focus on these four things out of a path dependency roadmap that might have 50 then you're going to make a lot of progress but in actual fact you can actually be working on 20 of them you might have little teams doing different things and what you will find is that there's sort of like a momentum that goes along and in fact the example in the slide deck that i gave was about fixing processes because that made training easier and well-trained staff, it was a disability care organisation, would be able to help people with disabilities achieve what they wanted, that joy in their day. Um, And one of the things I also say is that, it starts as techniques, it moves to the mindset so you get the map and the compass in your head and at some point because you just start doing this and then you start doing it with your colleagues and then all of a sudden kind of everybody does it. Mm-hmm. So
0: I summarized all of that into outcomes thinking is the process that helps you change the way the entire organization delivers value. So that's (laughs) Uh, so thank you, Alex, for that. Um, And Ed, um, tell us a little bit more about your CEO advisor session. I think this is a great one for all PMO leaders as well. All these are fantastic.
5: Yeah, I think um, some of the things that I cover are, you know, along the same themes as as some of the other people have mentioned. I mean, especially when we talk about project managers can help you run the business. And, you know, uh, the presentation I had was really about um, taking some of the skills that you developed as a PMO leader and sort of translating them into being a CEO advisor and so obviously, you know, thinking about traditional project management, and this isn't about memorizing the PMBOK, but when you're first starting out and you're learning some of those processes and procedures, you're developing some skills that now you can translate those skills into other areas. And the unique situation that project managers and PMO leaders get into, especially in those um, higher level leadership discussions that I've been a part of, is that sometimes you have some financial leaders in there and you know they're very focused on the finances and they know the budgets inside and out, but they don't really have any understanding of the technical aspects. And then you have technical leaders, the same thing. They might know a lot about the technical aspects of these strategic discussions, but they don't really understand the budget implications or the schedule implications. And it's not necessarily just the traditional triple constraint, although that's a big part of it, but some of the other, I wouldn't say soft, the other things that we learn as PMO leaders, you know, whether it's managing stakeholders or managing a communication, or like we talked about, change management or some of those things. Again, not really understanding that you've got this very broad range of skills. I don't want to say they're generalists, but they're not just specific in one area. And when you're having those strategic discussions and you become an advisor to the CEO, it really is about understanding all of these different complexities and how they all fit together as kind of gears for the overall machine and how one thing impacts another area and really understanding that big picture and, and trying and to translate that and then the other part of kind of the presentation and why i talk about it is that you know everyone well not everyone but a lot of people i mean they want to continue to grow you want to continue to mature and, and a lot of people especially when you get to be a pmo leader You've got to be a PMO leader because you followed some career path and you just, kept, right. you know, taking on more and more responsibility, bigger and bigger projects and programs until eventually, you know, you were leading, you know, some some project management office or or some team. And now what do you do from that point? How do you move up from there? Well, you know, getting to working directly with the leadership and directly with the CEO um, if you're working for a commercial organization as a CEO, you know, in government organizations, a different level of leadership, but being able to sit down at the table, have that broad view and a big picture view of all the different things that are going on. And then, you know, like we talked about, there's a, a certain part of business acumen that takes some adjustment in, in moving from a project manager to a PMO leader, to being able to speak to a CEO. And it is, you know, learning that different language and that different way of communicating. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's part of what makes it exciting. You have the depth of the knowledge, but just learning how to speak it in a different way. And, and a lot of the same things that I'd echo with everyone else is talking about, understand the purpose and understanding the why, and really being able to translate that to those CEOs that they don't want to hear that project management speak. They don't want to hear you quoting the pin They don't want to hear about we're going to have a process for this and the metric for that. And that's not what they're concerned about, but you can still have it in the back of your mind and still understand when you're talking about, we're going to go into this specific area from a strategic perspective, how are we going to do performance management? We know what done looks like, but how are we going to have some measuring points along the way to make sure that we're on track? That's where that project management mindset and skill set can come in and really add a lot of value. Oh
0: gosh, so good. Oh my gosh. Thank you all so very much for being here. I wish we could keep going, but we are out of time. Um, And I'm just so grateful for all of you taking the time to be here and be a part of um, the PMO Impact Summit and helping us accelerate the impact of all of these PMO leaders. Mm -hmm. So thank you so very much for being here. It's an honor to share the stage with all of you. Um, You're just, you're just wonderful people. And I'm incredibly grateful, um, especially to Andy, since you're so afraid of me, you always say yes to everything I ask. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's what he says.
3: (laughs) Uh, You blame me.
0: So thank you all so very much for being here. Thank you, all of you, for participating, all of you listening and watching. Um, This recording will be available for the next couple of days, so I'm sure we're going to get a ton of people watching that. And um, it's just an honor to share this stage with you. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, KD. Thank you so much. It was
4: a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely, and Andy, good point. Thank you to uh, to our Keyed In folks. Another shout out for Keedon. Keedon partnered with us to bring this event to you free, so we could continue to bring this ev- this event to all of you free. We do this um, well this year. We're doing it twice. Uh, so we did May, and we're going to do it again in September, but with this similar format. We had to make sure it would work first. Mm-hmm. And Keyed In, you know, Andy, you will appreciate this about Keedon. Whenever I start to say, "Hey, can we try out?" They're like, "Yes, I'm in. Let's do it." So they have a very similar. Andy's always the First, one to say yes to my crazy ideas, which is why he's been, <laughs> he's usually the first response I get. It's like, yeah. Because I'm scared be to say
5: no.
0: <laughs> so one day you're going to surprise me and say no and I'll be like, what? I'll have to come hunt you down in Honduras. Um, so anyway, thank you to all of you for being part of this. Thank you to Keaton for helping us make this event a reality. Um, Keaton is actually giving us, I do want to mention this really quick and then you, we will send this out in an email as well. Keedin is uh, going to give a $100 Amazon gift card to one of the people that, in, that um, completes the PMO survey. So on your um, event platform, click on PMO survey and take their quick, easy survey um, and you will be entered into the Raffle to Win uh, Amazon gift card, which we will do, uh, probably send it out on Monday Monday. I'm trying not to work this weekend and we're gonna have this live through Friday. So I want, or recordings through Friday. So I wanna give everyone a chance to submit that survey. So um, one of you that submits the PMO survey will win an Amazon gift card courtesy of Keaton. Um, and Ke- and if you have not seen Keaton's sessions, they were phenomenal yesterday and today. Definitely go watch them. They're very much in alignment with, oh, Alex, you're going to love it. Their third slide today from Tom Raper, who gave a presentation, I said he had me at slide three, which was moving away from outputs and focusing on outcomes. Um, Yes, and all you need is a definition, and I've got that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so anyway i thought that was really cool um so so thank you again to keaton thank you to all of our b- brilliant thought leaders and um especially those of you that was able to join us for this uh long q a session today um thank you very much it's an honor i will see you all very soon bye-bye for now
1: thanks bye
0: thank you so much laura Okay. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed both halves of the Q&A session with some of the speakers from the most recent May PMO Impact Summit. And don't forget next week, we are going to have a separate Q&A panel discussion with my silly and brilliant Impact After Hours casual fun Q&A style session with some of the greats in the PMO and project management community. And don't forget, if you love what you are hearing and learning, and we're helping you make a bigger impact with your PMO and in your organization, please take the time to leave a rating and review so that others can find us and know that we're going to help them make an impact too. Bye-bye for now.